0: Welcome to Sparkplug, where we talk to smart people working at the intersection of business and technology, brought to you by Snowshoe, making mobile locations smarter. Sparkplug is happy to welcome Carl Boutet to the podcast today. He is the author of The Great Acceleration, The Race to Resilience. Carl is an executive advisor to retailers, global brands, leading businesses worldwide who want to leverage their use of technology and analytics to improve business outcomes. And Carl was recently named one of the top 100 global rethink retailer most influential retail thinkers in 2021. So we're happy to have you on the podcast today, Carl. Welcome.
1: Welcome to the podcast, Carl, and congratulations. Could you begin by telling us your story? How did you arrive at your current role of an advisor to national brands and major retailers?
2: Yeah, it's been like a 25-year journey. Uh, The bulk of that journey was me actually uh, owning and operating a chain of retail locations from coast to coast here in Canada for the first generation of wireless. For those that are old enough to remember those those old flip phones and all that stuff. As as we were kind of coming out of that and getting into much much more of a commoditized uh, product segment, I had the opportunity to partner with uh, Costco Wholesale. And open uh, those famous cell phone uh, kiosks, but which were much more at that time that uh, you know, that had all a full array of technology products and then that basically led me down this path to sort of just really looking to have a deeper appreciation for the general dynamics of and the complexities of, of retail and uh, and for the you know the past uh, 15 years now basically guiding other uh, retailers and businesses, And uh, that support them to to sort of just adjust to a a marketplace, a a consumer and all the trends that surround them that are just always moving faster and faster.
0: And you've also been involved with um, helping people learn how to think smarter about retail. You've been involved at McGill University up in Montreal for some time. So what do the students and the classes bring to you? What benefits do you see as being part of that academic community?
2: Yeah, so my involvement with McGill started back in 2017. Um, what, a press release came out that um, a substantial uh, gift had been given to the university to launch a retail management school, a proper, fully integrated, uh, multidisciplinary uh, retail management school, which was really you know, a first uh, in, in several levels. First of all, one that was focused uh, on, on the retail sector. Although, uh, and we want to really get back to a very broad definition of retail, which I think is is important to note. Also, um, so so when that press release came out, uh, it mentioned also that there was going to be a uh, innovation lab tied to the school, and I'd been working uh, promoting or throwing around the idea for a couple of years of launching a retail uh, lab here in Montreal. And when I saw that McGill University uh, had plans to do one, I said, "Well, there's this. Is perfect, this is a perfect opportunity." So. Uh, the day after basically that press release I was in the academic director's office saying how can I help how can I support this our industry depth really needs a, uh, a more structured approach a more disciplined approach that academics can kind uh, of uh, can bring and and uh, that depth that we're sort of lacking in the gift uh, for the Benson school I mean it was from Aldo Benson so if you're familiar with Aldo shoes through Aldo shoe group yes um, they had re- there was a recognition that our industry needed a little more of that structure, uh, and also let's be fair. I mean, to track talent too, because it's a, an industry that's been uh, notoriously difficult to recruit into, because the students would often just see um, see our industry as a summer job, <laughs> you know, play, something to do in the meantime until they get the real job, without knowing all the serious and very uh, uh, interesting and complex and and uh, challenging roles that could be waiting for them, uh, you know, in the head offices or even on the on on the floors of the organization. So all to say that I got involved through that uh, perspective, not necessarily as a, a, uh, uh, to teach, but then an an opportunity came along at the beginning of the pandemic to teach at their executive, uh, with McGill's uh, Executive Institute, which is um, uh, for non-credit executive education and teach marketing with them. So not directly linked to the Benson School, but thanks to the Benson School that I was able to, uh, Make those contacts, and uh, and I still stay close and advise the Retail Innovation Lab at McGill, which is now a, a partnership with Circle K Kushta, which uh, you are uh, familiar with, another group here. And uh, and uh, and since I've actually started teaching as well in Asia, that um, mm-hmm. which is really interesting because uh, that was through another opportunity, not linked to McGill, but I was able to. Uh, uh, to connect with the Dean of the Asian Institute of Technology. Last time I was in, in Bangkok, just a couple of weeks before the pandemic came out and uh, and now uh, teaching marketing at the MBA level there as well. And that's also an amazing opportunity to to learn from the students and to mm-hmm. uh, to engage with them and just get a better feel for a part of the world which we know is, is influencing how we operate as well more and more so lots and lots of learnings and, and you, you nailed it. I mean, the, the key thing for me, what I'm most excited about is the opportunity to learn with the students. And, and mm-hmm. I make the utmost of that by class participation and asking them to present you know, what they're excited about in, uh, in, in marketing. And that's where I often learn about new trends, new brands, especially in, in, in different parts of the world. So yeah, I love combining. It's a, it's a recent thing for me in terms of the teaching Uh, That was brought on by the pandemic and my openness to uh, leverage uh, (laughs) virtual education, but uh, something I'm definitely committed to uh, for the long term.
1: So I'm curious about academia, um, especially retail academic study has been like during the pandemic. You've survived COVID, but I'm curious, have your students, (laughs) what's that been like?
2: It's really interesting um, because in my case, more that I've thrived, right? So the opportunity to teach in Asia uh, wouldn't have happened. Uh, I, although I'd had some conversations with the Dean about maybe going and teaching like over two weekends or something like that, flying down and doing like an intensive, some intensive sessions. But if it wasn't for the pandemic and the opportunity to do this virtually where I'm, it's, you know, seven in the morning for me, 6 p.m. and I'm teaching night class. <laughs> uh because of the time difference. And then that evening I'm actually teaching another night class. So it's 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 really uh, broadened the possibilities of the education and and allowed you know students from all over the world too to connect much more. So for instance in Miguel in the last class I taught uh, uh we had a we had some students from the Middle East, which we've never had before. Um mm-hmm. and we've had, you know, we sometimes would have students from Europe so I'm told, but you know, the time difference was a little more challenge for them. Um, you know, and then we would have sort of teachings, and we'd have to do uh, classes in Toronto, let's say, in Vancouver or Calgary, and things like that, specific to those markets. Now we just throw up, and we have one class. But that, all that to say, we are going back as well into in person, and especially at the undergraduate level, that's you know that's a given. The experience is much richer uh, to have, you know, to be able to combine the two. But mm-hmm. it's uh, it's a hybrid world. But I, I think the, the key learning especially at the executive level where they're more, um, you know, there's more experienced and probably have a more um, stress on their time. <laughs> uh, the opportunity to be able to do online versus in class and be able to juggle the two is, is going to keep going forward for sure. I mean, they yeah, those students particularly appreciate the flexibility.
0: So let's turn focus uh, to your book, The Great Acceleration. Uh, can you give us a thumbnail sketch of your new book?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I always use the word book uh, in in brackets because <laughs> for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, I know you know it's a it was a five year process that I, I that started with a conversation with a business uh, business school strategy prof of mine, and we were, you know over a reunion and uh and after a long dinner together he finished with saying you've got a book in you which I didn't know what that meant <laughs> and I just sort of like I started thinking well what does that mean and what can I talk about and uh and then five years later uh with the pandemic uh and the word acceleration on everybody's lips and, and during the launch of my friend Steve Dennis's who I believe you've had on uh but his own book launch we hosted a book uh, uh, Oliver Banks in London and myself hosted his book launch, his first book launch, and I co- coined the term "Great Acceleration" because I thought of it in the context of how, you know, especially with the first lockdown, these trends that we were all predicting became sort of pulled forward. And uh, as we were jamming with Scott Galloway, who was who was there for the launch as well, uh, another author, uh, I, that's where I sort of brought this idea. Said, you know, could we look back at this period of time? Sort of the same way we had, you know, much Great Depression, the Great Recession. Could this be the Great Acceleration? Because uh, of all the trends that we were forecasting to happen five, ten years from now, seemed to be happening in five, ten weeks at that point. Mm -hmm. Obviously, things settled back down a bit, but that's where the Race to Resilience, or the subtitle of the book, uh, kicks in, where it's not just about uh, uh, digital or e-commerce versus physical commerce. It's about a, a mind shift in the way that we need to rethink the whole value proposition of our businesses.
1: Great, speaking of acceleration, uh, you're launching this book in a new way. How is this different from a typical book launch and what has the experience been like for you?
2: It's pretty much different in pretty much every aspect of again, quote unquote (laughs) book launch. Um, So the, uh, the first thing is I really wanted to own the process. So I didn't deal. I self-published. Uh, I, I control 100 percent of the distribution, meaning I, I'm not on on your traditional sort of uh, you know Amazon and other platforms because I want uh, to practice what I preach, which is owning the relationship with the customer and the opportunity to to, to speak directly with them. So at, at a cost, obviously, of, of much, of much uh, a greatly reduced uh, distribution uh, and possibly sales but, but at a, at a, at, with an upside of being able to, to stay engaged with the people that, uh, that read the book. The reason why the book's in quote, I put in quotations often is because the real value I think is what's coming is the idea that we're constantly updating, uh, including all the data in the book. There's a lot of data that sort of was tracking in different markets, how um, digital adoption was playing out and these sort of things. So, and those, those data points are important to update because, you know, things are always moving. So I think we need to, uh, for, for the readers, it's a, it's be frustrating to have a book that just sort of s- starts and ends in a static way. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, I mean, those are sort of the main, the main differences. And and, and the fact that the physical book uh, was, uh, was part, you know, was launched with, the, uh, available only with an hour of my time. So a little more expensive than your traditional book, $250 to get the physical book, which was, you know, a very limited supply, uh, but came with an hour of my time. Because, again, I wanted to, you know, you could buy the digital version for for $12.99, but if you wanted the physical version and and, and really sort of get, and more importantly, I think the hour where we get to speak and have the uh, the, sort of the in-depth conversation around how the frameworks in the book could apply to your business reality, because the idea, too, is they, they, it's very important to recognize these accelerations are not evenly distributed, depending on where you are in the world and what you're doing. It's it, so, and at what time, at what period in in, in this pandemic you're doing it. So, um, so that's why I wanted to tie it to that. And now it's also very much tied to my speaking engagements, where um, you know what I'll often do with the book is will be made available a certain quantity and will be made available tied to a speaking engagement. So it's really it's sort of it's an evolving process. Uh, I, I was literally updating uh, content in the book 48 hours before it was printed, something I would have never been able to do if I'd gone the traditional route. And I'm involved in some tra- more traditional projects right now. We're six, 12 months out with publishers uh, for some more academic uh, sort of stuff. And, and and it's not perfect. Far from it. I think, you know, there's always things that are moving in shape, but at least it's out there and, and I control it. So that, yeah. was, that was how it really deferred.
1: Well, that is really unique that you're offering that um, one-on-one time, you know, for that package Um, and certainly not, you know, one solution fits all. That's definitely not the case. So, um, yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, the the, the frameworks were meant to be so generally accessible, but how you interpret them and more importantly, what you do with them afterwards, I think that's, you know, that's where the the time becomes more interesting. And and, uh, and that's, you know, that's really what I wanted to do. I'm, I'm I'm not a. I'm not here to sell books. I'm here to build relationships and 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 hopefully engage with people that are curious and want to learn more about you know the way I perceive the thing, what's going on and the time I've dedicated in the past 15 years to really trying to understand that.
1: So in some of your public talks, you've used the phrase "digitally enabled commerce." Mm-hmm. What does this phrase mean?
2: Yeah, so I'm trying to get away from e-commerce because one of my pet peeves, and 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 you know, even though the, a lot of the data in the book sort of tracks, quote unquote, and here with air quotes again, with with e-commerce, is it really tries to make create this uh, false juxtaposition between this is online commerce that you buy e-com that you're, you're that you're sitting in your couch and you. You click away and you do everything virtually. And this is in-store commerce, which you got to go into a store and you pick something off the shelf and you go through it. You know, and, 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 and when we're using those terms, we're really, tr- we're really pulling the two things apart, which they really aren't. Because what's really happening most of the time is one's influencing the other in, in, in either direction. So digitally enabled commerce. So the race to resilience is this notion that we're heading to our 50-50 world. Uh, much more rapidly than we thought at first, because we were. But it doesn't mean we're going to be fifty percent online, fifty percent in store, as we're we're you know classically uh, uh, tracking this. It means that we're heading towards a world that fifty percent of the customer journey is going to be predominantly digitally enabled. Which in some cases it already is. If you look at a an QSR and uh, or a uh, quick service restaurant business, or even companies like Panera. Who have come out and said 50, over fifty percent of their orders are, are are done online before the person shows up and picks up their order? Um, when I said a broad definition of retail earlier, that's why. Like I think these these behaviors apply to everybody across the board. Uh, we know click and collect is in, in tr- more traditional retail formats has also uh, increased uh, significantly. Now these are new data points that we're tracking. They're being added as well to to the content that we're going to you know that we're going to be sharing. But digitally enabled just means let's get away from e-commerce, let's get away from this notion of these silos while well, you're e-commerce and I'm in store and we're, we're, we're competing for you know for assets or resources, you know our organization, and let's think about digitally enabled, meaning you know we're just facilitating uh, the access to the transaction, whichever way or shape or form it takes. And that's for me, is the most important part.
0: Right. so so, so let's uh, double down on that kind of uh, erasing binary thinking. Yes. And maybe we can do a lightning round on binaries that are no longer relevant. Uh, so, um, for example, you just nailed e-commerce versus brick and mortar. That's a binary that, that should be gone, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Another binary should be gone is sales per square foot. <laughs> We're in a world where square feet don't mean anything anymore because the, 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 the surface of purchase, it goes well beyond the store or the, or the surface of influence of purchase goes well beyond the store. So so these are things that we have to rethink and that you know the analysts are sort of hang, hanging hanging on to in, in, in their quarterly reports uh, or same store sales uh, and I, another one you know that that's very difficult to to hang on to and there is and to be honest there's no sort of standard reporting on these because depending if you're uh, one organization will treat curbside as a e-com sale as another one will will treat it as an in-store sale oh, really so, so how do you even unpack that? So that I'm always sort of curious as to how you know these analysts try to train and for instance, Nordstrom has been trying to get away from it. Nordstrom just wants to report sales. They don't want to report, they don't want to send this because they they just think it confuses the market. We just want to talk about right. overall sales. And I think that's that's where this is going. And if you want to take it one step further, uh, the 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 metric or the KPI that I I favor which is still very progressive and, and will take time to get there. Is customer lifetime value. Like let's, how, what can we do to build that metric? And that will allow, that sort of breaks down the, these barriers and these differences that I think are, are culturally, even in an organization, important to, uh, to, to disassemble.
0: Right. How about single channel versus omni-channel?
2: Yeah, I mean that's a peeve a lot of us, and you know, having the industry the word omni-channel is sort of it was is always a buzzword. And again, I'm speaking at an event in a couple of weeks that has the word omni in it as well. So it's yeah. something that conferences uh, it's kind
0: say. of hard hard to avoid, isn't it?
2: Yeah and listen it depends are you you know are you more concerned about what it means or or or, or is it just you know or is it important the words we use so mm-hmm. um, i think the word omni sort of conveyed this idea at first that you were everywhere all the time that was that was the promise of, of omni channel retail and we realized that it wasn't it wasn't um, uh, effective i mean it just you just it a it was pretty much impossible, and 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 B was: is it really what the customer was asking for? The consumer was asking to be served in a way that that suited them. But that didn't necessarily mean you had to be on every new platform and every new social media and everything that every channel basically that would that would open to to you. I mean, you needed to think about. So then you see. Uh, you see things like Nike uh, getting off Amazon, you know, saying like, "Yeah, we don't need to. We don't need that channel. That's not right. that channel fit our purpose." But you know, single channel, uh, I wouldn't necessarily argue for either. I, I definitely don't believe in in digital only or physical only. So I would, uh, so I would say it's the combination of, of the boat of the two that really unlocks the best mm-hmm. opportunities. But you got it has to be done with with a key. Uh, a key understanding of the purpose of why you're doing it and where you are where you are depending on on the digital or physical channels that you're choosing.
0: Right, right and you just you just touched on that in speaking about customer service being more than just uh, uh signing up for a bunch of a, a bunch of social media accounts, but you know customer service isn't necessarily opposed to automation, but can use automation. And so the, the two in the past used to be this kind of yeah. curated small store experience where you actually have customer service versus something automated pinging you on your phone. But increasingly I'm getting those pings from small retailers that are automated, but still make me feel like, like I'm in touch with the store. Yeah. Oh
2: yeah. And I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of automation. You know, if we can automate away the mundane and, mm-hmm. and, and, and let the human in the loop take, take over when, when things, you know, are required that, but I, I think you have to, uh, you have no choice but to to automate yeah automate the repetitive at least uh, and and which we know is can be you know, anywhere up to eighty percent of the journey in a lot of cases. right Why aren't we using that and and I'm happy to hear Nan, you're saying that you know the small retailers because that's something I think I know for me anyways with the pandemic here and traveling less, I had more time to invest in in sort of helping and supporting my local. Uh, ecosystem here, and that was the first thing I was trying to do: is, 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 sh- is show them that even the smaller uh, businesses can now, uh, uh, you know, uh, have the resources to take on these these solutions that they probably thought were impossible to them, and now are very much, uh, in, you know, in, in achievable for them if if they just want to dedicate a bit of energy and, and time more than money in a lot of cases to. To, to, to bringing them on and, and and making the most of them. But I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of where automation, what automation can do. And it also helps even if it's just a, for, for talent and those sort of mm-hmm. things.
0: Absolutely. Well, of course I'll bring up the, the big binary, which is uh, enterprise class retailers like Walmart and Amazon versus small retailers. Is that really a binary that's still true?
2: That's a great question. Um, it is still true, obviously, because it's 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 and I, if anything, I think it's it's polarizing even more. So I've I've had this this theorem that I still need to really, you know, get the, the data to properly back it up. But I think it's pretty obvious that we're familiar with Pareto's rule, the you know, 80 mm-hmm. 20, it seems like that's going to like 90. <laughs> it's 90 ten. So I think the long tail of independent is, is stretching out because I think people wanna have these very specific uh high touch experiences in very in very narrow categories but at the same time i think the big the big players are also compressing where uh with this you know the fall of department stores for instance where these all that that volume is sort of going to the top three uh top three top four retailers which basically are walmart amazon costco you know sort of those ones are sort of compressing that which would have had before uh more and then you have like maybe we can debate out Kohl's and a couple of other ones but then then specialty comes in in between uh Home Depot and all that are still doing Best Buy the big box are still around and 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 kind of but I, I, those numbers keep on shrinking right so I mean in, in right Onyx we had three four big box concepts were down to one hardware is down to two I mean uh Department stores, you know, you tell me. I mean, I don't even know what which which we can consider really uh, successful these days. Uh, so, so I just feel like that part of Pareto is compressing, and the long tail is stretching at the same time. So, I'm not sure if it's 90 10 or if it's still 80 20 with just a longer tail. But it feels like that polarity is 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 increasing because big players are obviously leveraging and using the acceleration uh, as a way to leverage the resources that they have and and the technological advances. But the long tail is going to to catch up, especially the the good ones, the good indies that are out there that want to remain relevant, that that don't necessarily uh, want to replicate the big box uh, business model and just want to really serve the the heck out of a a very specific uh, customer base that they feel near and dear uh, and, and close to.
1: So we have a loyalty program that use, that's used by hundreds of smaller retailers. Okay. Um, what does this acceleration mean for small retailers? How can they sustain relevance?
2: Well, I think, you know, with your loyalty program to begin with, I think there's a, there's a need to become a little more sophisticated for small retailers are looking to have to leverage data more. I think they need to understand it's no longer a big player game to be able to get a little smarter around. And lo- we know that loyalty programs like yours are a wealth. Of, I mean, they're they're the, some sort of the best tools you have to to learn more about your customer, and that requires uh, maybe a little more sophistication around how to leverage uh, the data that allows you to deliver on more personalized offers offering. And that's, I think, that's sort of key to the the um, to the small businesses. And and I, I feel for them. I mean, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that I did the, you know a big part of my 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 retail. Um, hands-on retail experience with Costco, which, so I saw the I saw the, the behemoth, but I then also spent the better part of six years working with a chain of uh, co-op of independent retailers across uh, Canada and had uh, also in the U.S., and very close to sort of the mom-and-pop, quote-unquote, uh, uh, dynamics and the challenges they have on a day-to-day basis just to keep the lights on. Um, so I know for them it's very daunting that any, any sort of new, tool that they need to, to, to bring in, but uh, to a great example with t- tools like yours is the, the user experience for them is getting, and, and the, the adoption is becoming so much easier. It's no longer a big thing like it was 10 years ago or five even five years ago to have to adapt uh, or, 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 or even adopt uh, these these new technologies. They need to learn and become a lot more agile and probably attract talent around them. Even if they just have two, three employees Working with them, one of those employees is going to have to be pretty digitally savvy, and that's going to be the person, uh, you know, that's probably going to take the lead on saying, "Hey, we need, we need to, we need to improve our, 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 our tool, our toolkit here," um, and probably wearing several different hats, juggling with several different things at the same time. But that's, that's where this, that's where this is going. If you're going to be part of that long, that successful long tail, you're gonna, you're gonna have to uh, take on these new ways of, of doing business, and, and that includes. Empowering, uh, you know, empowering your business with the right uh, technology tools.
0: So let's talk a little bit about those technology tools. Which ones are really top of mind for you? What kind of technologies should we be paying attention to?
2: Yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, that's that's always the key question, and I think it comes down to what you know, business you're in, what segment, what your go-to-market strategy is. It around personalization? Is it around convenience? Is you know, what are what are sort of the strengths you're looking to play to? But some of the low-hanging fruit like we want in technology-wise, the ones that I think that are a little easier and kind of are at least worth exploring. So obviously, you have loyalty as a data gatherer you know, and personalization tool. I think that's really a hard one to avoid. I don't think, you know, we live in a world where nobody wants to be treated like the next person. I think we all want to have, feel a certain level of, of, of uh, caretaking and, and personalization. And so the opportunity to leverage tools that are pretty straightforward, to, to build that loyalty is, is really important. Um, the the other one, I think the pandemic, because depending on different areas where you are in the world and how severe lockdowns were or weren't, but this new trend towards appointment booking and knowing that somebody is waiting for me at the other end, these tools are, are pretty straightforward as well and easy to, uh, easy to access. Um, and then the one that I really pushed hard at the beginning uh, of the pandemic, just especially because I was coming back from Asia and was witnessing just the impact it was having there was live shopping. I think live shopping is a really interesting tool that we're still really uh, far behind uh, on in the adoption in uh, in you know in the Western world. But it's, I mean, it really was sort of the key tool for for a lot of businesses in in Asia, uh, especially China, obviously, who are optimized for that for that particular technology. And we're still struggling here to bring it on. So. Um, but then yeah, there's all you know all the, all the others. I'd just you know be careful that some of these some of the uh, these other tools could be pretty time consuming to to pull in. So I would look for sort of the tools that are that are the quick, you know, where you can quickly measure the success rate and get a very quick get a, a quick understanding of what the ROI is gonna be. I mean that's where the businesses today are looking to invest uh, you know, their time knowing they can quickly uh, measure what's going to happen versus those larger, big infrastructure sort of level um, changes, which in some case, depending on the size of the business, might still be required. But short-term least, focused on the ones that you can quickly measure and, and see the results almost instantaneously.
1: You just named some key tools in loyalty, personalization, customer service, live stream shopping, online appointment booking. These are used right now. So what's coming next for us?
2: Um, I've been talking for a couple of years about, and I think it's, it's now really starting to take, take shape is, is the digital layer is this, this sort of how we're going to be more and more enveloped by this, this, um, this contextual information, uh, that's going to augment, uh, I think the, the customer experience, uh, wherever we are in store or not. And, uh, but I think even more so in store. So, uh, I think this is, you know, the, the, the technology is catching up. Five Gs, the, the hardware, all these things are starting to happen that are going to create more and more opportunity to really create some rich um, data layer, uh, digital layering around us. And and the example I've been using in some of you know for a couple of years already now around around this is how today you'd walk into a, a building or a store, and obviously you would be shocked to find out there's no electricity running in that building well i think in not not so distant future we're going to have that same reaction if we walk into a building that doesn't have you know a pretty decent digital layer around it that's going to give us a lot of context of you know information that's relevant to us and and um you know we get a lot of questions around the, the hardware of this what's is that you know the glass the google glass and all these other things what's that going to be is it the phone is it is it a headset is it whatever i i'm i'm not quite there yet to to give a prognosis on that, but one thing for sure is I don't think there, the digital layer is going to thin. I think the digital layer is going to thicken, but it's going to have to be quality. It can't be noise. And and how we find the right information, in the right place. And I'll, I'll tie it back to loyalty again. I think I think the way that we get that information is often through through gathering the you know the getting the information through the loyalty programs that allow us to better understand. How how each individual uh, you know shops with us or is engaged with us or interested in, in being with us and and this applies again. I use the word retail, but remember I'm ta- I'm pulling this across a very broad spectrum uh, of uh, of industries that basically anybody who's dealing with a client, <laughs> it could be healthcare, it could be uh, hospitality, it could be uh, any entertainment, uh, you name it. They're all going to be facing the same electricity pretty much supports all those industries and I think I think the digital layer will be as well.
0: Right so so you spoke about contextual information and contextual personalization to me that speaks to the promise of VR and augmented reality and really like creating my own little pocket universe of the things I want to see is that kind of where where the world is trending you think?
2: Well, I think there's sort of two two opportunities. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, you got Facebook basically taking ownership of the metaverse, uh, which is is going to be sort of one thing. So you, you know, we're going to getting too technical. I think we know sort of the differences between augmented and virtual. One is one is a layer, which is the one I think is is the richer, shorter term one that where we we're still you know appreciating something that's physical, but it just added value being created in in in, in the layer around it. Uh, and the digital layer around it, the fully virtual, I think, is really interesting as well too. I think that's more. Uh, uh, the use cases are a little more narrow uh, right now. They've been sort of more tied around gaming and that stuff. I think there's huge opportunities, and I've, you know, spoken about this a couple of times where I find that we're underutilizing that opportunity. You know, why? Why is it? And I've had this conversation just a couple of weeks ago with a technology provider that wanted to virtualize the store and just basically allow me to walk up and down aisles virtually and pick out product. And I was like, why would I want to, why, why do I need to see another row of shelves? Like, why can't I take uh, a, a Travis Scott Fortnite experience and travel galaxies and, and, and find those same products or be at the bottom of the ocean or on Mars, rather than, than having to recreate what a, what, what it would look like walking through my typical, you know, shelf store environment, which, it really isn't that exciting, and, and and so I think we've lacked a bit of imagination uh, around around the VR opportunity. I've seen some, you know, interesting ones, I think Adidas and Nike and these guys are playing around with it a bit more. But it would, uh, but they I think they're they're two different sort of opportunities. And will they converge possibly? I mean, mixed reality is another thing as well. But uh, but I think it's you know, there's there's no going back. I mean, there's no there's no I don't think there's any scenario where there's less of either of those things.
1: So data is important and yet data has changed over the years. Can you walk us through how data collection is changing for retailers now?
2: You know, I remember back in 2017, 2018, I just sort of landed on, it wasn't sort of, it wasn't really in my wheelhouse, but data privacy
0: sort mm-hmm. of
2: became quickly <laughs> to my wheelhouse just because of the fact that I was working with a lot of technology companies and they were gathering some pretty sensitive data. I mean, let's be honest: you know, behavioral data is sensitive, and especially those that are uh, personally identifiable, uh, makes it that much more so. For instance, uh, the Retail Innovation Lab at McGill that I've been a part of. You know, this that that these are academics. You know, they want to they want to track and research for 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 you know for academic reasons uh, certain behaviors. But there's also commercial applications to those. So you got to be very sensitive. And so I think that, Karen, is uh, sort of the big shift and the transparency, quite honestly. I think we, as an industry, we weren't transparent enough. The only time consumers were learning about how their data was utilized was after it had been hacked and it was too late. They're like, oh, my God, what are you doing with all this information on me? And now how did that end up in the the wrong hands? but then there's also more contextual information, and 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 we're also getting better. I think at, at um, aggregating it in, in ways that are relevant, but don't don't uh, hurt the uh, don't hurt that privacy, that need for privacy. So we're trying to find this this balance, which really isn't easy, um, but is 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 very rewarding. So I think the idea of, to your point, uh, Karen, was you know, data be let's say five years ago, ten years ago, was sort of very Basic it was it was it was just sort of demographic. Uh, now we're getting into psychographic. We're you know we're looking at. I've been part of projects trying to understand people's facial expressions and how those could or can't <laughs> or translate to something meaningful or not. So we're I think we're just trying to unpack all that. It's still very early days. Uh, I have a, a consulting practice as well, Studio RX, where we're trying to use data to help small businesses as well. Trying to just because we know they just don't necessarily have the time. So how, do you, how can you quickly capture value with the data? Some things they already know that just feel sort of instinctual you know, around, around some of the unlocks, but often there's things that, you know, the data can quickly uh, show them around, you know, even just you know, how their products are performing, how their store layouts are working, uh, what you know what are the sort of basic a b tests that can be happening and and that sophistication i think is also an important element of how data, how we use data and how it's changing
0: right, so moving from kind of collecting all the p i i you can to kind of <laughs> zero zero party data or data that you've actually um asked people to provide um that's really a shift that we're we're undergoing right now
2: absolutely yeah primary data is key and and we just we go back and uh, we rewind a bit to how uh, about what was different about my book and how I collected it. I think you'll see retailers doing that or businesses in general doing that more and more where they want to really do as much as they can to, you know to own the relationship not just because they want to have direct contact but it means that the data is theirs. It's not they're not having to rely on on second third party, especially third party second party. You can still you can still work and there's ways good ways to work that and, and build the uh, trusted relationships but uh, but you know going out there and, and third party is getting very scary um, and again I think there's still very early days around all this legislation where we're trying to figure out you know what what makes sense and things are moving the acceleration is not just in the consumer behavior it's the acceleration is in, on all fronts of the digital realities of, of how we leverage people's uh, data so uh we need to I think catch up, try to catch up as close to that as we can. But um it's it's a it's a tough race. But you you point out the right uh the right thing there, Ned is around how do we go from you know, collecting everything and anything, because that's what we were told to do at one point. We just like, we'll figure it out later. The algorithm's gonna figure it out. The algorithm's gonna tell us right. if all this information we've been gathering, you know this noise that we thought was useless is worth something. Now to a point we're like, okay, hold on, like instead of just collecting all this stuff sort of ad hoc, you know, what are we gonna do with it? What purposes does it serve? Does it protect our our, our customers' um, uh, privacy? Is this being clearly opted in? Do, do customers understand why they're giving us this data? And I, I would, you know, push back and something I've been doing with, you know, for a while too, is are we giving them value in return? It's one right. thing to collect all this data, but, and, and we, all, we all opt in, right? We all opt into these things and hoping that we're gonna get something out of it. How often do we truly get something worthwhile out of it versus just sort of a sort of generic, lazy, um, you know, sort of blanket approaches to all of us where we said, hey, I'm just giving you all this data at my local grocer, but everything that I, you know, why am I still getting, I'm a vegetarian. Why do you keep sending me offers for steak? Right. So, <laughs> so
1: personalized.
2: Right. Right. So, so that, and that, that upsets me quite honestly, because I'm like, listen, I'm, you're asking a lot for me. Okay. I appreciate the special offers and all that, but you're asking a lot. Like I'm telling you every time I'm in here, I'm telling you some pretty sensitive stuff. I'm telling you what I'm eating. It's not, this is not sort of, you know, lights, you know, you you could, you could uh, interpret a lot of stuff from that. And then you're not doing, you're not serving me even with the the least amount of consideration. I mean, there's, and I I'm generalizing. Obviously, there are uh, stores out there that are doing a, a much better job at that. But generally speaking, I mean, there was, you know, there was very little of that. But now another piece of the acceleration, obviously, is as the companies have become more sophisticated around it.
0: So if I could ask you to look far into the future, let's say five, ten years, what's retail gonna look like out there? I'm asking you to be a prophet. <laughs>
2: Yes, be careful with the use of that term. A friend of mine, I think, already owns the trademark on that, but <laughs> um, so so it's again not evenly distributed. So and I don't believe in a, a future of retail. I believe in futures. <laughs> I think there's a lot of different paths, and I think they're going to be, uh, you know, going in all sorts of directions. In my book, I have sort of what I call the I have what I call the retail relevance index with sort of some specific attributes where where, where retailers are going to want or businesses in general are going to want to differentiate. So I think those will sort of prove to be different paths forward. But if I need to sort of give you a prognosis, something a little more uh, all-encompassing, this you know the race to resilience, the idea that we're going towards a world where it's going to be harder and harder to tell physical and digital apart. I think that is something you're going to see in five to ten years. Really, sort of take shape and 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 that digital layer we were talking about earlier, and how this all sort of ties together and enriches the experience and hopefully personalize it and, and builds that relevance. I think that's that's something that we can uh, we can definitely expect. And and I, I don't I don't think it's going to be fully virtual either. I don't think that five, 10 years from now, we're just all going to be sitting on couches all day long just buying stuff. I, mean, I think physical retail is going to have still a very strong, well, actually stronger maybe than ever, especially uh, for for branding considerations and, and, and building margin. I think the, the physical is going to probably play the biggest role in that. So it's going to be an interesting ride. It's going to be a rich one for sure.
1: Well, thank you so much, Carl. I do have one last question. What is your personal mission and what do you hope to be remembered for?
2: Um, I mean, if I, my personal mission really is is around helping businesses stay relevant, like I think you know, I'm have been an entrepreneur my whole life, so anything around helping the business remain remain relevant, uh, a business that customers want to be engaged with, I think those are a really important things. And on the on the flip side, there's also motivating and encouraging the next generation. To, to be excited about the possibilities huh, of working in our industry is something that I'm taking more and more pleasure in. So I gave you a two for one answer there, which is typical of retail. We're always looking to to promote.
0: Fantastic to talk to you today. Really appreciate your time. Thank you.
2: Thanks, Ned. So look forward to you guys. Let me know when it's up, and I'm sure we'll make sure we uh, we we share the good word.
0: Okay. Have a good one. Take care. Thanks Thanks, for listening today to the Spark Plug podcast and brought to you by Snowshoe, snow.sh for smarter mobile location. Spark Plug is a wholly owned property of Snowshoe. All content, copyright 2021, Spark Plug Media.